It's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Jean Lee. Jean Lee is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated journalist and a global fellow with the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. She led the Associated Press's coverage of the Korean Peninsula as bureau chief from 2008 to 2013. In 2011, she became the first American reporter granted extensive access on the ground in North Korea, and in January 2012, she, she opened the Associated Press's Pyongyang Bureau. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Ms. Jean Lee. I'm really glad that so many of you have come out. I think we're going to have a fun evening of discussion and debate about North Korea. I've got an amazing lineup of experts on North Korea who are looking at this issue from very different angles. So we're going to tackle this from all fronts. Uh, we've got, uh, starting from the end over there, Ms. Hannah Song. She is the CEO and president of um, Liberty in North Korea, which is an NGO that helps North Koreans get out of the country and resettle into life in, I think, here in uh, the U.S. and, and South Korea. Korea. Okay, and then I'm going to also introduce Dr. Sukyong Kim. She's a professor at UCLA, and I have to say, uh, her book is required reading. Her book, Elusive Utopia, is required reading in my classes on North Korean media studies, so I highly recommend it. And we've got another UCLA professor here, uh, John Duncan, who is a scholar and historian uh, and, a, and an expert on pre-modern Korean history. Do I have that right? Um, one of your former students, Grace Yu, sends her regards from the U.S. Embassy in Seoul. <laughs> and last but not least, we have Paul Carroll, who is one of my favorite Northern Californians, uh, and uh, is a, what is your new job? Senior advisor at N-Square, a nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation collaborative, but for many years was program director at Plowshares. And I'm actually going to pick on you and start with you. So the way this is going to work is we're going to have about 45 minutes, and I'm going to take the liberty of starting the questions off, but I hope this will be, all of you will jump in, uh, and, and then we'll have open it up to questions from all of you. I'm sure you have some questions that you have that you want to ask these experts. But I'm going to start with you. Now, we, we hear so much about the ballistic missiles, the nuclear weapons, and the ramping up of all of that activity over the past six, seven years since Kim Jong-un uh, took power. Mm -hmm. You've been watching this for a long time. Can you just clarify for us and really unpack for us where we are now, where North Korea is right now with their nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles program and what it is we need to be watching for? What is different this year? Well, thank you. I, I am very honored actually to have been invited to, to speak tonight and, and by the Zocalo organization and um, big fan of genes as well. It's important to focus on the capabilities that North Korea has, no doubt about it. But, but people in my community, I'm a, I'm a nuclear policy wonk with, a, I guess, enough technical expertise, expertise to you know, have the conversation. Um, I think for me, the, the big thing to keep in mind is any discussion that you hear where people talk about rolling back North Korea's nuclear program, we're, we're past that. We have to live, as, as Secret, former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry says, we have to live with North Korea the way it is, not the way we wish it would be. And that's not to say that 30, 20, 30 years from now, we may be in a very different world, and there may be a status or a situation on the peninsula where the North decides they may roll things back. But I would say today, we need to assume that North Korea can mate a nuclear weapon to a ballistic missile that can reach North America. Not just Guam, not just maybe the Aleutian Islands, but North America. Accurately and reliably all the time? No. But it doesn't have to. Uh, you know, we're talking about a nuclear weapon. It's characteristically different. Um, the pace is also, you know, clearly shows that they are doubling down. Their, their pace has gotten much more rapid and they've gotten better at the last few tests. And even the ones that are failures, you learn something. That, you know, Henry Ford didn't start with the Model T right away. You learn each time, you, you well, iterate. That's one of the things that we need to keep in mind. Sometimes we have people saying, well, it was a failure. No. no, every test is a success in a certain sense, right? right? That means that they still need to keep testing, right? What are we watching for? What milestones, right. or what markers are we watching? Should we be watching for? I would watch for another submarine test. 
Okay, um, and what does that, uh, if they accomplish that, what does that mean? What that means is unlike, say, a ballistic missile test, their technology for ballistic missiles are pretty visible. They're, they're ground-based. They do have mobility, but they're ground-based, and they're usually liquid-fueled, which means you get, so, you get a couple days' warning. You see something being moved, you see big tanks of fuel, um, but they're getting better at that too. Solid-fueled missiles are like the ones you might have lit off when you were a kid, the little Estes rocket where you kind of put the fuse in well, and I didn't, you run away. You <laughs> um, and they're, they're literally, they're, they're like a big matchstick. Okay. More stable, you don't need to keep the fuel cool, and, and, and they're getting better at that as well. Submarines would be, it's too strong to say a game changer, but it would be also significantly different. You can't track them. They're quiet, they're underwater. Um, and they, they've done some very embryonic testing with submarine launch ballistic missiles. So I would watch for that. Um, I would also watch for another nuclear test that has the same size yield um, as, the, as the recent one. Now, I think it's important to keep in mind, in 1998, both India and Pakistan tested nuclear weapons, like five at a time. They haven't tested since. And we assume their arsenals are reliable and potent. And North Korea has now tested six times. So, so this habit we have of calling them backward and, and you know, unsophisticated is only to our own detriment. We have to assume they're as good as you know, maybe not the Indian Pakistanis yet, but they've tested six times, and this last one was a doozy. So much bigger than past tests. And do they need to test above ground? So, so far, the nuclear tests have been underground explosions. Will the next one be an above ground explosion, and what would that mean? That, no, they don't need to test above okay. ground. In fact, testing above ground would be very provocative, because if they decide to launch a missile and try and detonate something in the atmosphere, the implications of the missile going off track are huge. You know, you could imagine it landing in South Korea, in Japan, in the open ocean. Um, I, I don't mean to be flip in saying this, but if they detonate something in the atmosphere, not only you're talking about the security implications and the provocations, but then you're getting the environmental, the ecological mm -hmm. um, considerations to take into account. What they would need to do to have confidence that they could fire reliably and accurately time after time is tests, continued tests with missiles with a, what's called a re-entry vehicle, you know, a mock warhead where they're actually aiming at something mm -hmm. and we could tell this by tracking it and it exits the atmosphere and re-enters intact. That's, that's, the, that's the hurdle, that's the technical hurdle is getting something out of the atmosphere and then back in without it burning to a crisp. So they have yet to prove that they can do that. That's right. Okay, so yeah. that's another milestone or marker that we're looking for. Right. Okay, and the last two intercontinental ballistic missile tests flew over Japanese territory. Mm -hmm. And they also, so a couple of things, the, I believe it was the last one, um, it's unclear, at least in unclassified information, whether that reentry vehicle did um, survive. Uh, I think some debris was found. So e even that may have been a test of that reentry technology. The fact that they flew it over Japan was less about Japan than about demonstrating the range. Okay. You know, you remember the rhetorical, you know, we could hit U.S. territories and bases, i.e. Guam. Well, it flew plenty far enough to hit Guam if they just turned it 90 degrees. Um, you know, flying over Japan, yeah, it did fly over Japan, but it was hundreds of miles up in the air over Japan. It's, it's not like it was a shot across the bow, so to speak. Now, if you talk to Japanese leaders, that's less relevant, <laughs> obviously, you know. Um, but I think that the test was, was not about provoking Japan. It was about following through and demonstrating their ability of, of range and accuracy and so on. So this year's a little different because of the pace. The pace is so much faster. We had the CIA director say recently that he thinks that it could be a matter of months before they accomplish this technology. The marriage of a, a nuclear warhead that is small enough and powerful enough to put right. on a ballistic missile that's capable, sorry, of striking California or even the East right. Coast and able to, to come back into the atmosphere successfully. So a matter of months. What about Donald Trump? How does President Trump play into the, the tensions? He's not helping. Um, I, I, so I think 
my, my former boss, a guy by the name of <clears throat> Philip Yoon at the Plowshares Fund, spent time working in the Clinton administration in the State Department on this. And his belief, and, and I, think it's, I think it's true, and, and others share this, is that North Korea, and particularly under Kim Jong-un now, he has in mind a number. He has in mind, you know, think of it like if you have financial goals. You know, I want to save $50,000 so I can buy that car I want. He has in mind a number of weapons that he can then say, okay, now they'll take me seriously. I've demonstrated it. I've got a certain arsenal. And then he may, or the North, you know, Pyongyang may consider, now, now let's talk. You know, show us what you got. Trump, President Trump, um, a couple of things. I, I don't think he appreciates, understands uh, the, the distinction of a nuclear weapon than regular weapons. I mean, he sees them as symbols and, and sort of potency, and it's important to not feel that way. He also is playing Kim Jong-un's game, right? Kim Jong-un is, he's good at dividing the allies. He's, North Koreans have always been very good at playing a weak hand, mm -hmm. effectively. And his rhetorical machine is effective, not only for external audiences, but for his internal audiences. Trump is playing his game. And that's a problem not only because you're provoking the individual who resides at the top of the heap in Pyongyang, who has his own ego, but if the President of the United States says something like a dare and then doesn't follow through, that diminishes our credibility not just with North Korea, but basically across the board. Um, and I frankly worry. And the other thing to keep in mind is the President of the United States, unlike the movies you may have watched when there's a scene where the President says, I'm going to fire on nuclear missiles. And then he turns to a Secretary of Defense or a Secretary of State and says, you put in your thumbprint now too. No, it doesn't work that way. It's only the president that has to authorize it. This is a problem, period. This is a real problem currently. Um, so I, I think we all need to, and, and I'm not alone in saying this, we need to behave and, and implement a policy toward North Korea with our allies in China and Russia that assumes they're, they've got the, the capability and doesn't mince, you know, doesn't get into the weeds of, well, do they have 10 or 12 or do they have, you know, range mm -hmm. of, it, that's too late. Let's keep in mind, um, I, my, I've, I've been to North Korea twice. The first trip was in 2006. That was before they ever tested a nuclear weapon. And their first test was, you know, a fizzle, as they call it. We were deterred from attacking North Korea before they became a nuclear state because they hold Seoul hostage with even, even kind of beat up old artillery. It's good enough to do the job. So I, I think we've forgotten that about this, you know, when, when people that, again, come from my world talk about deterrence, like, like it's a religion. It's not, it's a theory. It's not particularly evidence-based. And playing that game theory and, and having too much faith in it, I think is a real risk here. And we have to assume they're going to keep testing, and, and they may want 50, they may want 100. Let's, let's sort of put that aside to an extent mm -hmm. and say, wow, let's think about why they're doing this and address the underlying security concerns. So I'm going to bring Sukyung into this conversation. What do they want? North Koreans. What do the North Koreans <laughs> want with this program? As one of my colleagues said famously, when you claim that you know what North Koreans want, you're either lying or delusional. So I'm going to start out with this preface, um, just share the best I can make sense out of. Um, North Koreans want respect and attention, and most importantly, engagement in um, you know, negotiations with U.S. Um, South Korea, I think, is really out of their interest um, in this whole um, series of events that we have uh, witnessed. Um, North Korea is a really proud country, and I think we, when we are exposed to North Korean news, we're mostly consumed by what the regime wants, what the leader wants, and we often uh, forget to think about what people uh, relate to and how they think about these whole issues. And, um, you know, I studied North Korean propaganda for my career, and one of the things that really works effectively is that North Korean propaganda really props their people to think proudly of themselves. 
And, and when, this is a very Korean trait. Uh, yes, and particularly in North Korea, <laughs> I think it really lives well. Um, one of the things that they really uh, endure in uh, extensive hardship uh, that was inflicted by sanctions and whatnot is that pride is what keeps them going, um, particularly in relation to South Koreans. I mean, from North Korean perspective, they look at South Koreans and say, what have they become as puppets of you know, American imperialism? And as a Korean nation which have kept the pure Korean essence, this is our destiny. I think North Korean propaganda really works around that notion mm -hmm. and props people to rally around the country despite enormous econ economic hardships. So um, I think they want respect from the rest of the world, mm -hmm. recognition, and uh, in practical terms, uh, peace agreement. Because, I mean, one of the things that keeps North Korea going with their nuclear uh, program is because they strongly feel that the uh, the, their sovereignty is not secure and U.S. can always attack them at any moment. I mean, we must not forget that uh, what ended the uh, war in 1953 is not peace agreement, but it's temporary halt. So armistice. technically, it hasn't ended. It's right. just a ceasefire. And that's a really exactly. important mm. point to remember. Right. <laughs> And actually, let's, um, I, I do want to ask John uh, just to um, build on this point, because you've got the historical perspective. There are a couple of things I want to ask you about, going back to what you mentioned, that sense of pride. Where does that come from? I mean, so I, we often say that uh, there's this traditional Korean phrase, and I'm not going to say it in Korean, but um, that, what is it? When the whales fight, the shrimp's back breaks. So Korea has seen itself as this tiny little country. Remember, it's a tiny, tiny little country wedged between these, these superpowers. But tell us a little bit about how that has shaped that ident their identity and how that helps us look at North Korea today. Okay, tall order. Man, <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, of course, when you're dealing with a question of this sort, uh, you run the risk of, of uh, you know, overgeneralizing and stereotyping. Uh, but I think one of the reasons why Koreans are so proud is because they have lived for 2,000 years in the shadow of a military, economic, and cultural giant, which is China. And unlike many other peoples who uh, existed on China's borders and China's peripheries, uh, the Koreans have maintained a distinct identity. They've maintained their own uh, dynasties uh, over the centuries. And uh, they have to constantly deal with the Chinese. And the Chinese are, had a habit of looking down upon them. And Koreans are small and they're kind of civilized, but they're not quite as civilized as we are, this kind of patronizing attitude. Mm -hmm. And Koreans have responded to that with a kind of stiff-necked pride. Uh, and so uh, if you ask me to what uh, in Korea's historical experience uh, I can attribute this strong sense of pride among the Koreans, I would say that's certainly an important part. I think another uh, more recent uh, uh, source of this kind of pride uh, probably comes from what the two Koreas have accomplished since the end of the Korean War. Uh, both sides have labored very hard to rebuild their countries and both sides have succeeded. The North Koreans have been, had difficulties in the 1990s and the 2000s, but nonetheless, in the 1960s and 1970s, they were doing quite well. I mean, and this I is an amazing detail, because mm -hmm. until the early 70s, North Korea had the stronger economy yes, between the two Koreas, and that's yeah. always really important to remember. Yeah. There was a time when they were on par, if not better. They were, in, in terms of uh, per capita GDP, North Korea was ahead of South Korea until the second half of the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the factors that motivated Park Chung-hee and his regime to uh, work as hard as they did to industrialize uh, and develop South, South Korea's Korea. economy. Mm -hmm. yes. So what the two Koreas have accomplished is also a big source of pride for mm -hmm. their people, and I think rightfully so. Mm -hmm. And now I want to go to the second part of my question, which builds on what you mentioned. Um, it's, I think it's important for us to remember that this isn't coming out of the blue. This is something that comes out of this legacy of the Korean War, and it's always important to remember how we ended up in this situation in the first place, right? That little bit of historical context. Uh, you've actually been to the DMZ. Now, this is interesting because you were born in South Korea. Right. You're now a US citizen. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and you were not able to go to the DMZ inside Pamunjom, which is the village, sure. until you became a U.S. citizen. Explain that. Yes, so um, I was born in South Korea, raised in South Korea, and came to the United States uh, for grad school, and I became a citizen in 2011. And at that point, um, I was deeply engaged in my research with North Korea's uh, cultural history, um, history of division, and I desperately needed to go to Panmunjom, um, which is um, kind of perched on this military demarcation line. This is where negotiations between two Koreas happen. The building itself is divided <laughs> between North and South. So once you're able to go into that building, um, you are able to walk around um, the building. And technically, you can go into the North side of the um, building, which is technically in North Korea. So um, the irony is that when I was holding a South Korean passport, I couldn't have access to that area, which is quite ironic, given that um, they are seen as uh, non-neutral parties to be allowed to this uh, conflict zone. And only US citizens um, or, um, or people without passports have access to it. And um, it just kind of uh, reminded me of what North Koreans are always making a big point out of, which is um, that our destiny, that South, South and North Korea's destiny, have to be uh, decided by Koreans but none others, uh, especially U.S. <laughs> Imperial <laughs> Army. So um, that kind of really uh, felt strongly on my skin as uh, being able to go into this frontier of Korean conflict only when I was uh, not having South Korean passports. So these feelings of being excluded from the very dialogue that should be happening between North and South and how that always have to be mitigated through the outside forces was really strongly felt. You have crossed the border, though. As a tourist. Okay, yes. so you have been to... Gumgangsan, okay, Gumgang so Mountain area. During the sunshine period of warming relations, when South Koreans could travel into North Korea, which seems like such a long time ago. Yes. It's been about 10 years now, almost right. 10 years. Right. And I'm just curious, as a South Korean, what was it like? I'm sorry, we're straying a little bit off the topic, but mm -hmm. I do think that I am curious to know what it was like for you as a South Korean at the time to meet North Koreans for the first time. Um, there wasn't much contact with North Koreans because that uh, Kumgang Mountain tourist project was to really devise means for North Korea to take uh, outsiders' foreign currency to mm -hmm. aid their economy while limiting the real contact between North and South Koreans. So um, my experience of crossing DMZ was really actually anticlimactic because <laughs> DMZ is imagined as this most fortified border, the dangerous place on earth. And of course, I was crossing the border uh, on the east coast uh, along the highway that was newly built for that uh, tourist operation. And it went by so quick. I mean, in a split second, I was already in North Korea. And I was just stunned by how close it was uh, mm -hmm. in terms of proximity. And what you see is this blunt nature, but nothing else, right? I mean, just barbed wire and some North Korean guard post security just checking on the flux of uh, South Korean citizens coming in. But you just realize that this is so close. And going to North Korea is no big deal. And what have been fighting, <laughs> what have we been fighting over for the past 60 plus years, just turns out to be so trivial um, in the face of the possibilities of going there so easily. So, yeah. Just to uh, put it in, just to give you a little bit of a geographical layout, Seoul, it would take me probably 45 minutes to drive to the, the border. Right. Uh, so it's very close. And, you know, so I used to go back and forth, but I, I used to have to fly from Seoul to Beijing and then catch another plane and go from Beijing to Pyongyang. So it took all day, and I just used to think if I could just drive my Hyundai straight through the DMZ, it would take me about two hours to get to Pyongyang. They never allowed me to do it, but it's, uh, it's right there. We're right on the border. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, want to remind, I just want to remind everybody that we, we still, still are in this state of uh, ceasefire, and this is what the North Koreans want, is a peace treaty, right? That said, have, you're all familiar with the Shincheon Museum, right, the Shincheon Massacre. So mm -hmm. does one of you want to share a little bit about that museum and, and perhaps no takers? <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Um, uh, no, I think that's how propaganda works. Mm -hmm. um, I have not personally been to Shincheon Museum, but I studied it the best I can by looking at photos um, and uh, blogs uh, created by people who have been there. And you see the most atrocious uh, kind of uh, war crimes that were committed by American troops during allegedly. the Korean War. Mm -hmm. Allegedly uh, on North Korean civilians. Uh, you have this gruesome wax figures of uh, North Korean civilian young women being physically ripped apart by U.S. soldiers and this gigantic size oil paintings de depicting how uh, U.S. soldiers were uh, kind of burying North Korean children alive, burning them alive. And this is how propaganda works precisely. And um, the way it works is to show how the most vulnerable, the most powerless uh, family members are just struck by this outside force that's not indigenous to Korean people's lives. So it's a very one-sided portrayal of Americans' kind of role in Korean War. And I am afraid that we do something similar. I think we're also subject to propaganda to a large extent. Um, you know, as somebody living in America, when you're exposed to any news on North Korea, what do we see? We see these um, you know, heavily brainwashed people who have no ability to think for themselves. We have this crazy leader who is about to irrationally destroy the whole world. And it's a very one-sided picture. And what often falls through the cracks is that you don't get to hear real people's voices and what they aspire to and how they will suffer and how they have suffered. So the lack of the human portrayal in both cases are astonishingly similar. And I think we have to move beyond that. And I think that that's what I would like to focus on tonight a bit more and get into a bit more detail about, because I think that's what we all miss when we look at the media coverage. We just don't get enough. It's so hard for us to get past the propaganda. And I can tell you as a foreign correspondent, if you go there, and we've seen a number of foreign correspondents go in there in recent months, you were invited there by the, by the North Korean government and taken on a, a tour, and you've probably read all these articles. You were taken from the airport, and they are with you 24-7. They live with you in the hotel. You cannot go for a walk. It's illegal as a foreigner in Pyongyang to just go for a walk on your own. So just imagine that, not even having the freedom to go for a walk. Every time you speak to someone, you have a translator there if you don't speak Korean. So how do you know that you're getting an accurate translation, right? All the other conversations are not translated. It's a little bit different for me because I spent so much time there. I was on the ground there for about three years um, for long periods of time. But for most journalists, um, that's what we're getting. We're getting a filtered look at what North Korea is like. I want to mention a couple things. Uh, you know, we, get, we see these big parades. They're impressive. We see the propaganda, the new buildings, the construction, and also all the money that they're spending on these nuclear weapons. Do we know how much they're spending on their nuclear weapons program? I, I do not. I think anyone that would make an estimate would also be very much a, a guesstimate. But it's, let's put it this way, the United States spends, even today, any, anyone care to guess how many billions we spend each and every year just maintaining the nuclear weapons we have? It's, it's about $40 billion a year. Okay. And that's not including cleanup and all of that. Um, so. I don't know, but I guess the way I would put it is it's clearly a significant investment for them as a nation. Um, I, I wanted to say real quickly, though, that mm -hmm. the War Museum, I, I had two takeaways for me, my visit at the War Museum, was it, it really struck me how patriotic it made me feel as an American. Oh. Because this was a point in time in my life, you know, I, I was a critic of, of some of our foreign policy, let's to be perfectly candid. I mean, it was, it was the George W. Bush administration. Uh, a few years earlier, I thought we were very ham-handed in the way we um, accused North Korea of having uranium, uranium enrichment program, which turned out they did. That being said, the way in which we severed the agreed framework and so on was, I, I thought, misguided. So I go to North Korea, I'm in this war museum, and growing up, I was in an organization called the Civil Air Patrol, it was an auxiliary of the Air Force. You know, if you've been to a VFW post, there is, you know, propaganda might be a strong word, but there's definitely an, an acculturation of the military's role in U.S. history, right? Every Fourth of July, Veterans Day, so on. Um, but when I was in that museum, because of the propaganda aspects, 
and the accusations of American troops using biological weapons and torture, I, it, it, made, it made me mad. I was like, are you? But the second thing I will say is, the, the basement is probably a couple of acres, and it's all war material, not behind the so glass. you're talking thing. about the War Museum in Pyongyang. I'm sorry, okay. I'm talking about the War okay. Museum in Pyongyang. Jeeps and helicopters and guns, and, and they're not in glass cases mm -hmm. nicely cleaned up. It's as though they were captured yesterday. Mm -hmm. So my point there is they're still, it's very much a, a daily mentality that they are on a war footing. You know, not necessarily high alert, but they are in a state of war. Yeah. So that's I, critical to remember. And I just want to go back to how much money. So we're getting, we get this picture of Pyongyang, uh, beautiful city, lots of construction. But this is a country, I just want to remind you, we don't actually have, the government has not published economic data for decades, so we're making guesses and estimates of what their economy is, but estimated GDP of about $30 billion, so even less than the U.S. is spending on upkeeping. Right. Uh, and so it's, I think right now, this, according to the CIA Factbook, it ranks 215 out of, say, 230 countries in the world, so really one of the poorest countries in the world, and yet they're spending so much money on nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. I want to ask Hannah, what about the people of North Korea? Uh, you have done such a great job in trying to change the narrative or, or give voice to the people of North Korea. And so I want to hear from you, uh, what kind of toll this is taking on the people of North Korea, all this money being spent on nuclear weapons? Yeah, you know, I think the conversation around the North Korean people is one that's been so absent, especially in the media. Um, North Korea is one of these very unique issues where for some reason we have such a difficult time distinguishing the regime from the people. There are 24, 25 million North Korean people in that country, and yet it's so easy for us uh, you know, to sometimes forget that and to kind of lump North Korea all together as just this sort of monolith. Uh, and so um, for us, you know, we, we really do try to um, really encourage both the media and really the public to look beyond the politics and to the North Korean people, just the everyday lives of the North Korean people. A lot of the conversation that's been had here, that's not the everyday experience that your average North Korean person has. Um, you know, how has the exorbitant spend on, on um, security and, and nuclear weapons and all of this impacted the everyday North Korean people? In the mid to late 90s, you had one of the worst famines of the 20th century. Uh, and that was because of a number of, of, of circumstances that kind of came together, including the collapse of uh, communism in Eastern Europe and kind of the, the stopping of all this aid and trade from their communist allies, including a lot of natural disasters. But more than that, the government prioritized you know, the regime, the elite, above all else. You know, they have made very flippant comments before that the people are of no concern. The government really doesn't have a concern very much for the everyday North Korean person. And so their priority is to feed the elite, it's to keep the elite, those in Pyongyang, really your top sort of 1%, you could say, or top 10% of North Korea, um, you know, appeased in a way, uh, loyal, and everyone else that really is of no real concern or priority to this government. So you see in the mid to late 90s as a result of this famine about you know, anywhere from a few hundred thousand up to even estimates of three million North Koreans who have potentially passed away and perished as a result of that famine. And we have helped North Korean refugees escape who talk about losing their parents and watching them starve to death in front of them. I can't imagine what it's like as a 12-year-old boy to watch my father starve to death and for him to explain to me weeks before he starves to death how I will know when he's passed, you know, showing me where to put my finger under his back because by that time he's gone, I should feel the full weight of his body on me. Uh, and then to have his mother go to China with his sister uh, to try to do some sort of business to make money just so that she can bring food back for him as a 12-year-old boy to help him to survive. Um, you know, unsuccessful in doing that, having to sell her own daughter in China so that she could come back and then help her son. Uh, you know, and, and this young man, Joseph Kim, you know, he came out, made his way out to China um, when he was 15 years old um, and eventually made it all the way here to the United States uh, and now lives and is going to college and is studying actually this very issue because he himself is an incredibly bright and intelligent individual who wants to be someone that can help to change his own country one day. And I think we forget that the North Koreans that we can access, you know, unfortunately, most people don't have the access that most of you here have had being able to go into North Korea. 
but for the rest of us, there are about 31,000 North Koreans that, that have made it safely to South Korea and are resettled and living there today. Uh, and it's difficult. It's like the best description a North Korean defector shared was, you know, going to South Korea was like getting in a time machine and fast forwarding 60 years, mm -hmm. having to catch up on, uh, on globalization and technology and all of these things. South Korea being so fast paced, technologically advanced. I mean, they, it was so challenging for them. But on top of that, the fact that they expect to come to a place like South Korea and to be welcomed by people they assume are their brothers and sisters, only to realize that this division has been for so long that this more recent generation, young generation in South Korea now view North Korea as a completely separate country. There's a lot of apathy, a lack of interest, uh, and frankly, a lot of discrimination against North Korean refugees once they get to South Korea. I mean, South Korea is a tough society. It's a tough it society, is very absolutely. hard even for South Koreans to thrive. Yeah. So if you don't have that, if you're not using a smartphone or computer from the age of four, sure. <laughs> it's very hard to compete. Right. Um, the language has diverged, which is something some of you may not know. I had to learn the North Korean dialect when I was there, and I kind of compare it to the difference between American English and British English. I think the first time when I was posted to London, I had to ask people to repeat themselves <laughs> repeatedly because <laughs> right. uh, I just didn't know the language right. um, or the, the local lingo. But it's the same thing with North Korea as well. They've, they've diverged in terms of the language. And Absolutely. I thought it was interesting. I think there's an app now you can use in s that, that defectors can use yeah. uh, in South Korea that will translate into South Korean for them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I do think that one of the biggest things is a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the problem with the rhetoric that's coming out is not only just how rapidly it's become very heightened, um, but that it has really dehumanized the North Korean people. Mm -hmm. you, know, you have language like we will, you know, the f absolute destruction of the North Korean people and things like that. This dehumanization of the North Korean people in some ways is, is really, um, you know, we're, we're going backwards at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, like many here have mentioned already, there is a very, very important and vital need, especially now more than ever, for us to have a broader understanding, a more holistic understanding of North Korea beyond just the security issues. We have to understand the history, the propaganda, you know, the North Korean people, the way they think. Uh, all of that takes into our things that should be absolutely critical as we think about the best approach and strategies on North Korea today. And the North Korean refugees that we meet, you know, many of them are, are, are very important individuals that we have an opportunity to learn from uh, and to have a more human perspective of and also to really understand that they themselves are really these important agents of change. A lot of people don't realize that actually North Korea has changed quite a lot in the last 20 years on the ground level. As a result of the famine, grassroots marketization began happening in that country. Uh, today, it's essentially like a sort of camouflage capitalism. You can go to a market in North Korea and essentially get anything for the most part, um, if you have access to a market and if you have money. So they're meant to have a centralized economy. Yes, that's that right. And a, a, a rationing system called the public distribution system right. that has fallen, that fell apart really during the famine. Right. And that, the ra I mean, North Korea, just to put it into perspective, is a small country, 80, 85% mountains. They have very little land to farm. Whatever land they have, they do farm. They probably over farm. Mm -hmm. Um, so they just don't have enough food to feed their people, right? They wouldn't have been able to, yeah. Anyway. They wouldn't have been able to anyway. And then also so many climactic disasters. Right. And their rations that the state provides mm -hmm. have dropped down to the point where they have to allow the people to find their own way. Right. So what are some of the things that you're seeing in terms of entrepreneurial activity? Yeah. yeah, and this is really important. This is one of, you know, there's a very simple diagram that we like to use that says, you know, prior to the 90s, you had the state really central to everything. They were at the core of information, your job, your status, money, food, everything. Uh, but the shift that happened after the famine was really that the markets became central. The markets became your source for information. You could now access illegal information that's being smuggled in from the outside world. There are North Koreans today that are watching Hollywood films and uh, South Korean dramas. Uh, you know, they're hiding because the consequences of getting caught with that um, could be very severe. Um, but they're beginning to finally see and understand uh, and have access to something about the outside world that they never had before. And this is really important because, again, we watch these clips that play over and over on the media of these 
brainwash North Koreans, these kind of automatons. And part of that is, yeah, you should really ask yourself, you know, what will happen if they don't play that role right now with all the eyes on them? And on the flip side, you know, I've talked to a lot of young people that have been like, I used to spit in my hands and pretend to cry because I didn't want to get myself and my parents in trouble. And so there's an increasing awareness. And of course, this is not throughout the entire country, but we're beginning to see a lot of these really important social and economic and information changes that are very important. But we don't pay attention to that because there is so much focus on the security issues, and, and, and rightly so. But that's the reason why I think we have to have a really, I think it's really important for us to have this holistic understanding of how North Korea is changing, how are the everyday North Korean people changing the way they think about themselves, about their own government, about the outside world. We interview the defectors that we help to escape and bring out, and the vast majority of them don't care about politics at all. They don't care about their leader. They don't think about Kim Jong-un. They only think about him to the extent that they absolutely need to uh, in order to show their loyalty to the regime and to the government when it's necessary. What they're concerned about are the same things we care about. They have family members. They care about their future of their children. They care about if they're in the wrong, Sungbun, the wrong class, that their child will never have an opportunity for a, a brighter future in North Korea. You have young people who will leave their families, probably never being able to see them, making that dangerous risk to escape that country, going to South Korea and trying to begin this new life. And the crazy thing is these North Korean refugees play one of the most effective roles in actually accelerating this change. They send, on average, every year about 15 to 20 million US dollars back into North Korea through remittances. That's not going to the government. You don't have to worry about that. That's not fueling this nuclear program. That is brokers in the border of China and North Korea literally carrying this money into North Korea, delivering it to family members, and that money is enabling their family members to actually invest in entrepreneurial market activities, to buy food and goods for themselves, to protect themselves, uh, and do all these things. And so that's significant. The average income in North Korea, I think, is like $1,400 a person for the year. And so to get and one go about $2,000, I mean, that's pretty significant. I just want to chime yeah. in quickly because Hannah and I had never met. And in the, in the green room, I was asking her about this just a couple of days ago. A few years ago, the United Nations set up a special, uh, envoy, special rapporteur for human rights in North Korea. And in my world, for years and years, doing track two diplomacy, which is sort of unofficial trips, often with former government officials, to meet with North Korean officials, to probe and say, you know, what can we talk about? It was always about nuclear and missiles, always mm -hmm. about military, classic military you know, security or definitions of security. And the, the conventional wisdom at the time was don't talk to them about human rights. It's a conversation killer. Can't do it. Third rail. And, and I, th I think it was by and large true, but when this UN, first UN report came out a couple of years ago, three or four now, it goes to your point about respect. The North Koreans want to be respected. They want to, you know, they're the Rodney Dangerfield, right, of Northeast Asia. They just need some respect. And when that report came out in the body of the UN, to which they are a member, yes, it pissed them off, but it got their attention in a way in which they responded to it. You know, they, of course, denied it, and you're wrong, but it, it opened space for that conversation to begin happening. And I'll, I'll, I remember people that I respect that are, were sort of security policy traditionalists thought, we need to start talking to them about human rights. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. There are tw you know, 24 or 5 million human souls in North Korea. And for some reason, Americans, and I, I think I'm guilty of this myself, I think of heroic, the Czechoslovakians who got out of the Iron Curtain, right, or the Hungarians. And, and yes, that was a closed society, but not, maybe not quite as closed. You know, the North Koreans have really figured this out. And still, I, I guess I worry, I'm, I'm curious what you think, when and how much is okay without threatening the regime so much that you're actually harming mm -hmm. those citizens um, or those people? Uh, Sig Hecker, who's a former Los Alamos lab director who's done a number of trips to North Korea, he does a little slideshow in a talk where he talks about the weapons program, but he also talks about what he's learned each time, and he shows this slide at the very end in the subway in Pyongyang with this boy with a baseball hat with a Nike swoosh on it, mm -hmm. and he says, where there's swoosh, there's hope. <laughs> and I'm like, I agree, I want to believe, but, but 
<laughs> I'm not sure how you've, so, what the sequence is. Yeah, or, so I'm curious know. what Hannah thinks about the sanctions, the tightening of sanctions, and it's well, so complicated for it those is, of us. But actually, before I guess I respond to that, one thing I would say is, and I'm glad you brought that up because we were talking about that before. Yeah. You know, we think that North Korea is impenetrable. You know, we've been in this dance with North Korea for so long and it's so cyclical, right? We should expect this. But every time it comes up every few years, this heightened rhetoric, it's almost like, oh my gosh, it's happening again. And of course, this is the most heightened it has ever been, probably the most dangerous it's ever been since probably the, the war. But um, that being said, what we forget is that the, the security stuff that's North that is the regime's wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. That's what they know how to do. And I think mm -hmm. you made this point earlier. So the more we play into that, this is playing their game. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. what they don't know how to respond to is a changing economy. You know, Kim Jong-un made it a, a two-prong approach when he came in. He does care about the economy. He does want to try to figure out how he can improve his economy. So the two-pronged is nuclear weapons and building the economy. Building the economy, that's right. Uh, and, and their expression that we've heard from North Koreans inside is, you know, reform without opening. That's what they want, or that's what they say they want. You know, and so the more we put this pressure from the bottom up, especially from these changes that are happening on a grassroots level, you know what scares the regime? You know what probably scares Kim Jong-un? It's the people. It's if you have 24 million North Korean people that all of a sudden, and I'm not saying revolution or any sort of instigation like that, but... This is what we see time and time again when you saw the currency revaluation happen at the end of 2009 and they made a big error with that and you saw the North Korean people pushing back and the government issuing an actual apology for that. You see them responding to these types of allegations of vast human rights violations and abuses from this 400-page report from the UN. You know, they respond to those things and they fumble through it because they don't know those things. They don't know quite how to respond and work their way through it because they're biggest fear at the end of the day is losing control. The regime's so ultimate goal is regime survival. So in order to maintain control, they're ruling with, by fear, with fear. Absolutely. And actually, I just quickly want to ask uh, John, is this something we've seen throughout Korean history? Is, is there something about, say, practices from the Joseon dynasty that we can apply to North Korea today? Not really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Some people would like to do that and talk about Confucian communism, but uh, I really don't think it is. But I would like to respond to something that okay. uh, Hannah said. Mm -hmm. uh, you said this is probably the, the most dangerous time since the Korean War itself. Well, that may be, but I would like to uh, take us all back to the late 1960s. I served as an enlisted man attached to the U.S. 2nd Infantry Division in Korea between 1966 and 1968. And in those years, the 2nd Infantry Division was responsible for the demilitarized zone on uh, several miles each side of Panmunjom. And things were bad. On October 1st, November, October 30th, November 1st, November 2nd, Lyndon Baines Johnson, then President of the United States, visited South Korea. The North Koreans responded to that with an ambush of U.S. soldiers south of the demilitarized zone in South Korean territory. And that initiated, that was the opening step in what turned out to be three or four years of really intense, low-level but intense military conflict between the North Koreans on the one side and the United States and the South Koreans on the other. Including the capture of the Pueblo? Oh, uh, yes, I'm, I'm okay. leading to that, yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, during those years, uh, there were scores of events where North Korean infiltrators crossed the DMZ or came by in by sea and attacked uh, American military units and South Korean military units. We don't know for sure how many people were, uh, were killed in these. Uh, for the United States side, 43 U.S. soldiers were killed and 111 were wounded. Those are the official statistics. We estimate that approximately 300 South Korean soldiers were killed and a minimum of 400 North Korean soldiers, and probably many more were killed during this. This came to a peak in January of 1968 when two things happened. One, the North Koreans sent down a commando squad of about 20 men in an attempt to assassinate the South Korean president in his official residence, the Blue House in Seoul. And the day after, maybe, the North Korean commando unit crossed the DMZ, the North Koreans seized the U.S. Pueblo. Mm -hmm. And that was when I was in the army. And we thought we were going to war. 
And subsequent uh, declassified information it, uh, has shown that we were very, very close to going to war. But fortunately, President Johnson had the good sense to say, wait a minute, let's not get carried away. The only thing I can say is I hope the current occupant of the White House shows the same kind of good sense. <laughs> okay, I think we're going to open it up to questions now. My name is uh, Albert Cheng. I'm a, I'm a grad student at UCLA. Um, I, was, I was wondering uh, if you could explain a bit the, uh, how much influence does the China have on the North Korean uh, government? Like uh, how, uh, how much influence, since China is North Korea's only trading, trading partner uh, and the only uh, country that has like a semi-open border with the North Korea, uh, and uh, <coughs> I, 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 how, uh, how dependent is the North Korea on the, you know, uh, this access to China's, and uh, um, uh, how much leverage does China have in Pyongyang? So, is, is there any chance the U.S. can work with China to influence North Korea? Just going to clarify: about 90% of the trade is with China, so there are there's a little bit of trade with other countries. But I'm actually going to ask John to answer, start answering this question, and perhaps you got you can chime in as well. Wow. Okay. How much influence does China have over North Korea? Uh, China's ability to influence North Korea is limited. Uh, it is limited by historical factors. There's a, there's, although North Korea and China, uh, excuse me, China and Korea throughout the centuries for over 1,500 years have had an enduring close relationship. Uh, the foundation of that relationship, the base of that relationship was an attempt, the need by both parties to contain threats emanating from the Manchurian region, from what is now Dongbei. Uh, so the two countries maintained a close relationship, but there was always friction in that relationship at the same time. Uh, and things changed uh, in the late 19th century because the new security threat was no longer coming from Manchuria, it was coming from the Pacific Ocean. It was the maritime powers, the West and, and Japan. And in the face of that threat, China's attitude towards Korea changed, and the Chinese became much more interventionist in, in Korea than they had ever been before. They never interfered in Korea's domestic politics until the 1880s, and then they began to interfere in Korea's domestic politics and also in Korea's diplomatic affairs. In effect, they were attempting to exercise colonial rule over Korea in the 1880s and the 1890s. Uh, this ultimately failed when they were defeated by Japan in the war uh, in 1894 and 1895. And then Korea was colonized by Japan in 1910. Many Koreans went into exile in China in order to resist Japanese from outside of the country. Uh, some Including of these people were nationalists, some of them were, uh, were anarchists, and uh, by, the by the early 1930s, some of them were communists. And the, uh, the first North Korean leader, Kim Il-sung, was active in Manchuria, in, in Chinese territory, in the early 1930s. Uh, he led a Korean uh, group of, of communist partisans who were affiliated with a larger Chinese communist military force. And then they got caught up in a purge where the Chinese became, the, let me put this very briefly, uh, very worried that the Koreans were actually acting as advance agents for the Japanese imperialists, and so the Chinese went after the Koreans. Kim Il-sung managed to survive, but barely. And uh, so this set a negative tone, in some sense, undertone, uh, to modern relations between China, between communist China and North Korea. Uh, we all know that, uh, that the, uh, the Chinese intervened in the Korean War, in the, November of 1950, when UN forces drew close to the Chinese border. Uh, and then Chinese, in effect, took over, took control of the war effort from the, from the communist side. And the North Koreans chafed at that, just as Syngman Rhee chafed at uh, the way the United States took control of the, the effort in, in the South. Nonetheless, when the uh, Chinese withdrew, then the, the North Koreans built monuments and all of this and were playing paying lots of lip service to this idea of lips and teeth between China mm -hmm. and, and Korea. Then came the time of the Cultural Revolution in China in the late 1960s, and the Red Guards included Kim Il-sung as one of their targets for criticism. And this created tension between North Korea and China. 
the, uh, the Koreans who were living in Chinese territory suffered terribly at the hands of the Red Guards. Um, and things got so bad that there was actually gunfire between North Korean and communist and Chinese communist military units along the border in the spring of 1969. Okay. So there is this deep mistrust uh, be, uh, between the two groups. But going back to the point that I started to make earlier, for the Chinese, the relationship with Korea has always been very important for geopolitical reasons. Earlier times, it was to contain Manchuria. Now it is to contain the maritime powers, the United States and Japan. The Chinese intervened in a war, in an invasion by Japan in 1592 when Japanese forces grew close to the border between China and Korea. The Chinese intervened in the Korean War when, as I said just a little while ago, UN forces drew close to the border with uh, North Korea. So the Chinese view North Korea as a really important buffer state that enables them to protect themselves against direct threats from the United States, Japan, and even Russia in, in a hypothetical situation. And the North Koreans know that they have that value to the Chinese. So and they resent so, it. So, well, they resent it, but also they use it. Mm -hmm. You know, so what they, are you going to do? So this is the shrimp. Yeah, yeah. This is the this shrimp. Is shrimp fighting back. Exactly. Yeah. But currently, uh, China supplies 90% of North Korea's fuel through the pipeline, and they do have leverage in that sense. However, they're not going to use it because what they're really afraid is um, having, you know, dis um, losing stability in North Korea. I mean, what they want is status quo. Um, so they would much prefer nuclear North Korea that would stay somewhat in status quo than having U.S. military troops up to Yalu River. It's a very yeah. tricky. It's a very tricky yeah. dance. And for them, the nuclear weapons in North Korea is a good, or like a good thing. Or they no, no not. I'm not saying that. I mean, they would not want it. But now, uh, <laughs> as Peter yeah. said, we have yeah. to live with the fact, right? So I think what China is really afraid is losing stability within North Korea. North Korean regime's collapse would mean that millions of refugees would pour into China. They don't want that. I mean, you, we've seen through the 2008 Beijing Olympics crackdown on refugees uh, to, you know, they had a very harsh crackdown on um, North Korean refugees during that time for the sake of keeping order within China during Olympics. And the, their stance hasn't really changed. And they don't want to corner North Korea too far uh, because, you know, North Korea's missiles and nuclear capability could easily reach China. They don't but want that scenario either. The fact is, right now, Kim Jong-un is not speaking to China. He has no interest in speaking to... So right now, the, the lines of communication are very limited. So China's playing this... is in this difficult place. They want to have enough access so they can have some leverage, but frankly, right now, they don't. They have economic leverage, but not political leverage. I would also add that I, I totally agree. I think China... China has leverage, to be sure. It, it is not unlimited, and Americans often think it is unlimited, or American mm -hmm. officials think it's unlimited, or we'll just farm it out. China can, can and should deal with it. But the, I, I'm going to speak in context of sort of um, the regional powers and dealing with a nuclear North Korea. It's sort of a tortoise and hare thing. The U.S. is always tactical. It's about the next set of talks, and mm -hmm. will they do a moratorium on missiles? And China plays the long game. You know, they're the tortoise, and so they have more patience. You know, the times in which China has signed on to a Security Council resolution, I think the factors that need to be in play are North Korea's behavior is particularly bad, or, you know, it was a raised middle finger to China, <laughs> and the U.S. and China are more or less on the same page in terms of a, a security concern. But those times are rare. The times when we're divergent are more common. Cameron Gastry, you know, as a native Iranian, I could tell sanction mostly worked to the benefit of the conservative wing of the regime in Iran. So regarding Korea, I know you were asked that question. I guess you didn't get a chance to reply. So what are your thoughts? I mean, sanctions or the negative um, repercussion of the sanctions against Korea or, you know, or against, you know, the, the, the effect on the people, the population of the country? I mean, at this point, I don't know. I can't speak specifically to how exactly this most recent round of sanctions is actually affecting on the ground. We're trying to better understand that, especially um, with um, North Koreans that we can try to speak with in the border area. Um, but, 
you know, I, I think one of the overwhelming concerns that we do have with sanctions is uh, the potential for it to cut off or slow down any of the sort of economic progress that we have been able to see uh, in North Korea. And again, a lot of that just being even just the access for everyday North Koreans of basic goods, electronics, whether it's USB thumb drives, where they're historically getting information and media from the outside world from these things uh, and those types of things. And so I can't speak specifically to the actual effect of this most recent round of sanctions. You know, sanctions yeah. also take time. It'll yeah. take a couple of years before they really pinch. We don't have time. I mean, the CIA director said it would be probably a matter of months before they reach this milestone. But what one interesting development uh, after UN sanctions um, uh, was decided was that North Korean government actually organized a committee surveying the damages uh, that was uh, ensuing from the sanctions. Now, why would they do that? And uh, also significantly, I mean, North Korea is sanction-proof, right? They have survived through toughest sanctions in our times. So. Uh, the only time that this kind of committee surveying the damages created by sanctions or um, international conflict was during mid-90s when massive famine hit North Korea and it was incredibly difficult for them to go on. So they used this result to uh, attract international donation and support. So they started doing that again this time, which is kind of significant. And I think that it's really the purpose of doing that is to rally North Korean people against uh, the outside force. So f it's for internal domestic propaganda, but um, the long impacts of it, we'll have you to live and see. You want to say something quickly? I think yeah. we have another question. Oh, I want to say something very quickly about sanctions. The purpose of sanctions is presumably to bring North Koreans to the bargaining table where we can work out some sort of an agreement. Uh, but if you're looking at it maybe from a, a North Korean perspective, it uh, didn't work out so well for Libya, and now it doesn't look like uh, it's going to work out so well for Iran with its uh, agreement with the United States. So I think that uh, sanctions are not going to be effective in pushing North Korea towards a bargain. It will make life more miserable for the vast majority of the people in North Korea, but, but that's all. But on the other hand, I mean, it's a tool, right? So when they do get to the negotiating table, that means the other side, North Korea will have a a viable nuclear weapon, mm -hmm. and the other side needs to have something to perhaps bargain away, right? So well, what the North Koreans want, as uh, right. Paul said before, was they want to have peace talks with the United States. Mm -hmm. They want to sign a treaty with the United States. That would, uh, that's their, I think, their ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem with that, from my perspective, is that uh, that should not happen without the active participation of the government of the Republic of Korea at the same time. And the North Koreans don't want that. So that's going to complicate. Talk about the role of Japan um, and their relationship to North Korea. And especially, I've been reading about how Japan is now has, has a military that's engaging and becoming bigger. and what thoughts were about Japan, because we've heard about China, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. So you probably heard the election news coming out of Japan two days ago, that uh, Liberal Democratic Party won by vast majority. And Abe Shinjo is one of the big beneficiary of this latest North Korean crisis. I mean, at one point, his political career seemed to have been dead. He came back because of this crisis. And um, what worries a lot of people, including me, is the increased talks on militarizing Japan and uh, this potential nuclear crisis just propelling arms race in East Asia, which is already a very highly volatile region to begin with. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's, it's quite worrisome as to what came out of uh, the Japanese election for me and why Abe Shinjo won the way he did. Um, so he's really using uh, this negative sentiment toward North Korea to justify Milita the militarization of Japan, yes. which has a lot of people in that region of the world very nervous. Right. I, I might add that Kurozumi was doing the same thing 10 years Absolutely. ago. Hi, my name is Michaela Shelton, and I think everybody wants to know, is war with North Korea <laughs> inevitable? And if so, what is the time frame, and what should America do to prepare for it? Let me say this. Kim Jong-un will not fire first. He's not suicidal, despite what President Trump says. He is not suicidal. The whole point of his... Uh, nuclear program is to protect North Korea and to make sure that his the regime with him at the top stays intact. So 
That said, I'm not sure that we can control what happens in the White House. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I really appreciate you bringing it up because I wonder why the question has to be framed around war rhetoric, right? Because there's like a lot of banter about who started what, you did this wrong, but the real important part is how do we get out of this, right? And it doesn't have to, the exit route doesn't have to be uh, framed by war scenario at all. Um, I, I, I mean, I, as I said, I'm from South Korea originally, now I live here with citizenship, but if I have to weigh my chances of being the victim of gun violence, random gun violence here in this country, against me going to South Korea and being hit by a North Korean attack, I think the former risk is much higher. Well, I'll tell you, for example, when, yeah, when I went to my hairdresser in South Korea, he was asking, he was supposed to go to London, he said, should I be worried? I'm really worried about going to London because of the terrorism. And I thought, aren't you worried about being here in yeah. South Korea? So there's a certain amount of desensitization in South Korea, and they're used to it because they've lived through this year in, year out. And we should kind of take note of that. Also, the market right now is very stable in South Korea. So the people who've been there and the people who are making these assessments about the stability of South Korea clearly don't expect a war anytime soon. I think the sh my short answer to the question is no. I mean, in inevitable is a pretty high bar. And so I would say, is it inevitable? No, because it, it, you're suspending your ability to do anything about it. That being said, I, you know, I, I agree. You know, crossing the street in LA is probably more dangerous <laughs> if, if you're repeating it. But, but my, my worry is, you know, intentions are one thing, behavior in the moment. Right. You know, humans are incredibly fallible. And we do massive military exercises with the South Koreans every spring. And depending on what they look like to the north, whether it, we practice a decapitation strike, which is aimed squarely at Kim Jong-un as a person, or whether it's more defensive in nature, they notice that. And you can imagine, it, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think about, well, suppose we fire some short-range missiles as part of the exercise and one goes errant, or one hits a North Korean fishing vessel. It, wars don't start cleanly out? and nicely. They start often by accident or misunderstanding or mis, um, you know, accident. And there are too many things that happen each and every year with our relationship with North Korea that the odds need to be lower. Mm -hmm. yeah. The final thing I'd say really quickly is that I, I wish I had a better prescription for you, but the fact that you're here tonight tells us that you're interested in this topic and you are you have power, all right? You have a voice and you have things to contribute. And I'm not gonna say just like, oh, call your congressperson. No, talk to your friends about this. T you know, write something about it. Yeah, you can call your congressperson, call your mayor. You know, Los Angeles is a huge city and it also happens to have a very large uh, Korean American population. There's an organization called the Council on Korean Americans which is involved in this. So don't just read about it in the headlines and think, gee, I hope it doesn't happen. You can actually do something about it. So I would encourage you to look at Link and the kind of stories that they tell if you want to understand what, uh, the, what it's like for refugees who come out of North Korea. Um, these two have written some very fine books about North Korea. You can find um, some of my writing. I write commentary and long format journalism about North Korea on my website. Um, so please take a look. And Paul is on CNN almost every night. <laughs> but just, I think, getting informed and having a, a better understanding of North Korea and who they are and what they want uh, would be a good start. Yeah, and this was an excellent start tonight, so thank you so much for this excellent discussion. I want to thank UCLA, our co-presenter tonight, for making this possible, as well as the Japanese American National Museum for taking, bringing us into their home. Um, also, thank all of you tonight for coming out for this really important discussion. Hope you had a great time. And finally, um, I hope you join us outside for the reception and one big last round of applause for our terrific panelists tonight. Thank you so much.